0: Well, good evening, everyone. Really glad that you came and joined us again for this Lenten series, and I really appreciate again the ministry of music that we've uh, cooperated with as these guys sought through prayer and practice and delivery to bring us into God's presence and worship. We've been in this uh, series, we're calling it the Stuff of Lent, and we've covered subjects like fasting and brokenness and repentance and confession. These are big subjects. This is a big undertaking for a Wednesday night after you've just eaten and you sat down and you might be a little tired tonight. But we're not easing off tonight either because we're taking on the subject of forgiveness. And forgiveness is a big topic. Let's ask God to help us as we engage this subject. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace which are poured out on us through Christ Jesus. And I thank you for this church and this fellowship we have and the privilege of coming to worship you. And I thank you for all who minister, those who prepared the food, those who did so much to make this service happen, for our worship team to direct our hearts and our minds to your presence. And now I ask that you would open your word to us by your spirit. Father, this subject of forgiveness is crucial for each and every one of us. And I just ask tonight that you would speak and touch by your word and by your spirit where you will, so that we might be more like Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. So forgiveness. A lot of people talk about forgiveness. It's a popular subject. One Sunday school teacher was teaching her kids about the process, and uh, she thought she'd gotten through a pretty good presentation, but she wanted to make sure the kids understood. So she said, okay, now you tell me, what do you need to do before you can be forgiven? And there was that Pregnant pauses sometimes happen when you're talking to kids and you get a little bit nervous. And then finally, a boy says, Well, sin, I guess. And, you know, I mean, that, that, that's one conclusion. That's one thing to realize. Uh, but forgiveness is actually getting talked about more and more. I picked up, a, I did a little research on the web and I came across this book um, called Forgiveness for Good, a proven prescription for health and happiness. And this is kind of typical of some of the things that our society uh, processes right now. Uh, an approach to forgiveness that is what I would say from the self-help camp. Here's why you should forgive because it's good for you. And uh, there's some things that I don't doubt are truthful in here, but I think the basic premise I have some issues with. And uh, the interesting thing is I found this book online. I got some quotes out, I pasted them together. I was walking around our church and I found this in our basement. So I'm probably offending somebody even right now while I'm holding this book up because it's somebody's book here. But, you know, hopefully you can forgive me for that. Okay, so this good doctor is trying to help us understand what is forgiveness. And he says he knows that that's an important thing, and I I won't read too much here, but he has all these things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not um, restoring the relationship with the offender. It's not to be done instead of uh, uh, seeking justice and all those things. It's not forgetting what happened. But here's what he says forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the feeling of peace that emerges as you take your hurt less personally Take responsibility for how you feel and become a hero instead of a victim in the story you tell. Forgiveness is the experience of peacefulness in the present moment. Forgiveness does not change the past, but it changes the present. Forgiveness means that even though you are wounded, you choose to hurt and suffer less. Forgiveness means you become a part of the solution. Forgiveness is the understanding that hurt is a normal part of life. Forgiveness is for you and for no one else. You can forgive and rejoin a relationship or forgive and never speak to the person again. What do you think about that view of forgiveness? It's a lot like it's all about me, isn't it? You can be empowered to help yourself have more peace, more inner peace. And he goes on to talk about uh, having these beautiful images we play in our mind and how to do some deep breathing exercises and uh, interesting. But I want us to look at someone else that talked about forgiveness. And interestingly enough, this Dr. Luskin won the Champion of Forgiveness Award from the Forgiveness Alliance. Okay, so that's pretty good, right? But we're going to read Matthew 18, and you have the uh, handout there in your notices. And what I'm telling you is we're going to read what God the Father says and who God the Father says is the real champion of forgiveness. Christ was talking to his disciples, and he wanted to teach them some things about forgiveness. So let's see what he has from that passage for us. Chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. And this is kind of a rough time for the disciples. They're hanging out with Jesus, and they're trying to figure life out. They're trying to figure out what it means to walk with him in obedience. Uh, They're trying to learn these new kingdom values. And uh, this seemed like a a good day. They had just been his teaching about forgiveness and about how to go to someone who's offended you. And it's appropriate to seek this confrontation that can bring reconciliation. And so after that, verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Interesting question. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven, some translators say. And in essence, what we've got here is Peter is feeling his oaths. He is feeling spiritual. He's feeling like he's learning this stuff about the kingdom and what God wants and what pleases Jesus. And the, the religious leaders of his time had taught that if you're really pious, you need to forgive three times. So if somebody has offended you, you forgive. If they offend you again, you forgive. If they forgive again, you're done. You've paid your dues. You don't have to forgive anymore. And so Peter, thinking, you know what? I'm going to one up these guys. These guys think they're so spiritual. But since I've been hanging out with Jesus, I'm really spiritual. So he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you think? Those guys say three times. But what about it? What if I were to forgive seven times? Wouldn't that be good? And of course, Jesus' answer must have flattened Peter a bit. Because he said, well, no, you're just starting, Peter. Seventy times seven is the same as to say you never finish forgiving, Peter. You never get to the end of it. You've never done so much forgiving that you can't forgive anymore or forgive again or forgive still. Forgiveness is going to be the new you, Peter. You're going to be a forgiver who doesn't stop forgiving. And I'm sure Peter choked on that. I thought, brother, I was just thinking maybe, maybe I could get so noble I could get up to seven times. Who in their right mind can forgive without end and be hurt and forgive and be hurt and forgive? And so I think Jesus understood, well, I've just really puzzled these guys. And so I've got to tell them a story that will help them understand how to forgive and how forgiveness really works. And I think you'll find that it doesn't line up so much with Dr. Luskin and his power of positive thinking approach. Basically, uh, this is what we get into when we wrestle with this subject. And I will say for some of us who perhaps have been worn out by a call to forgive, and maybe we think, well, you know what? If I keep forgiving, then justice never happens. It's like at some point, don't I need to be the one by holding back forgiveness to bring the person to accountability or to bring a person to some sense of justice? And that's a confused part in our mind because there are times to seek justice. There are times, like in the previous verses in the same chapter, when we need to speak the truth to somebody who sinned against us. So that's not what this is about. This isn't to do with reconciliation or restoration. This is about, at our heart, whether we hold on to those hurts or what we're supposed to do with them. So Jesus tells this story, picks up in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement a man who owed him 10,000 talents, we'll call that in round figures about $6 billion, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him cancel the debt, and let him go. So we get some insights here as to the process and what forgiveness really is. First of all, there's this man that owed an infinite debt. If you owe $6 billion, it's not like you can figure out how many days you have to work for that person because there aren't enough days in your life. And so it was an infinite amount. It was impossible. This grievous debt was so bad that it could never be repaid. And in actual fact, of course, there's a lot of people. It's like you... Uh, I read, when I was reading through different forgiveness quotes, it was a fascinating exercise, by the way, to be reading this stuff. Um, There was a guy who was in prison for murder, and he had murdered his uh, wife. And people came to him. He'd been in jail for about 12 years, was coming up for parole, and he was still so remorseful. He said, how can I ever pay back? Was 12 years enough to pay back for what I did to my wife? I killed her. And he understood that he had a debt he couldn't pay that he was never going to be able to pay back for that wrong and injustice he had done. And some people, of course, have had grievous things done to them. Really grievous things. And say, how can I forgive that? That debt is so huge. That hurt is so bad. But Jesus here is using an example of somebody that totally could not pay back. That was characteristic of this story. And what the cost was going to be for this guy was slavery. And not only for him, but for him and his wife and his children and everything he had. So his indebtedness wasn't going to be an inconvenience. You know, some of us perhaps ring up really, really big medical bills because we were at a gap between insurance or something. And so sometimes people say, well, I know you'll never pay that back. You can either go bankrupt or go down to the hospital and ask them if they'll take $100 a month for the rest of your life. (laughs) You know, and in a sense, you can say, well, okay, I cut a deal. I can carry that load. I can't pay back the 150 or $200,000, but the hospital knows they'll never get it if I go bankrupt. So we both agreed for me to pay back this much. But this man didn't have that option. There was no deal to be cut. He owed so much he could never pay, and it was going to take everything. His family, his children, his wife, everything he owned was going to be gone because of this debt. And um, that teaches us a couple of things about this sin. You see, when we sin against God or even sin against another person, it means that a debt has been incurred. A debt is kind of a financial and economic term. So let's just think of an example here. Let's say that Barry invites me to his house for dinner. And uh, that's a lovely thing. And my wife and I are there having an enjoyable evening and Barry's showing me his fish tanks and I get excited about his fish and I swing my arms and I knock over one of his wife's favorite lamps. And the lamp's a $100 lamp. Now we're in a moment together, Barry and I. Can you picture it? Can you feel it? Oh my goodness, I bought her that when we were on this trip and we can't go back there to get that lamp again. And I feel horrible because I've broken this special lamp. It costs $100, and yet it's also got sentimental value and things. Now there's got to be a transaction between Barry and I, doesn't there? I owe Barry 100 bucks, or Kathy, because it was her gift. And, uh, and the question is, will I pay or will Barry pay? Someone's got to pay. If Barry says, oh, Wade, forget about it, forget about it, forget about it, it's okay, don't worry about it, you know, it's nothing, what he's basically saying is, Wade, Kathy and I will take that hit to our balance sheet. We will take the loss. We had that as a possession, it meant something to us, but out of my uh, compassion for you, I will graciously eat that debt. But you see, the debt didn't just go away. He can't just say, "In saying, I forget about it, it's as if it never happened. There was a real loss. Either he has to pay... Or I have to pay. But somebody has to pay because there was a real loss. And when we sin against God, or we sin against each other, a debt is incurred. If I do something mean and nasty to you, if I gossip about you, if I slander you, if I were to steal from you or do some other thing that's hurtful to you, I owe you. Legitimately, you have a claim on me because I've taken something from you I had no right to take. I didn't have a right to take your reputation. I didn't have a right to take what you rightfully should have possessed. And so you would feel this sense of injustice and that a debt is owed. And that's what this story teaches us. There is a pile of debt because of the way we've sinned against God and against each other. So forgiveness is not a matter of pretending there's not a debt. Forgiveness is a matter of finding out how can payment be made? How can somebody take care of that payment and who will take care of that payment? Um, and sometimes this is where we really struggle when somebody's done something really hurtful to us. Maybe you've got a grief right now, you're aware of in your heart, in your life, where you think, yeah, but wait, if you knew what this person did to me, you'd know why I can't forgive that, because you'd understand how big this bill is, and how deep that hurt is, and how wrong it was, and what a grave injustice it was, and I don't deny one of the things that we all that get to deal with people's lives is understand there's a lot of hurt to go around. A lot of really horrible things have been done, one another. Some of them have been done even in the body of Christ to one another. And so I understand that the payment can be really big, but the question is, what's it take to get that payment made? How in the world can forgiveness really happen? Is it as the good doctor says, by thinking beautiful thoughts and deep breathing exercises? Is that going to pay the bill? And he says you can do this forgiveness just yourself without having any inference to whether the other person actually gets off the hook or not. And uh, in some ways, I would say you can forgive somebody who's done a hurt to you without having to wait for them to repent or confess. Those are gifts from God. That's what we're supposed to do for one another. And that kind of uh, helps with the reconciliation process. But even if somebody won't confess to you or repent or take ownership for what they did, you can still have the power to forgive. That I agree. But you don't have the resource to forgive if you're just doing it through wishful thinking. And beautiful pictures you play in your mind. So let's go on and see what else this story helps us to see. Verse 28. So here's this man owed so much and he begged for mercy and he was granted mercy. Six billion dollars forgiven. Go free. Now how do you think you'd feel on that day? Most of us think about how we'd feel if we won the lottery, right? Got a hundred million or so. That'd be an interesting day. But if you owe $6 billion and it's forgiven, and what it was going to cost you was the rest of your life in jail and your family taken away from you, and then somebody forgives that debt, it is just the same as winning $6 billion. You understand that? Your balance sheet has just gone up $6 billion. And the consequences of that debt have been removed. And that's what this man experienced. You think this guy would be skipping through town, don't you? I mean, shouldn't his spirits be elated? But let's see what happens in this parable Jesus' Teaches us, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is not small change in today's figures, using sort of daily wages compared to then in our Western culture. It'd be about twelve thousand dollars. So, twelve thousand dollars is not chunk change, but it's not six billion dollars, and it is actually, if someone has a job, a debt that could be repaid. So, this is what he did. He grabbed him. And began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. Does that sound familiar? The same thing he asked of the one that he owed was asked of him. And when he asked for mercy, what did he get? When he asked for mercy for the six billion, what did he get? He got mercy. When we go to God with all the debt of our sin and a whole lifetime of sin built up and even sin that we're going to commit until the day we die and ask for his forgiveness, what do we get? Do we not get mercy from God? And so this man who had just received mercy does this in verse 30. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. So this man, where's his gratitude? Where's his understanding of what it means to be forgiven? Where's the joys flowing up because of the forgiveness that he'd received from the real master? Well, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed, $6 This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Wow. Didn't turn out so well, that guy. And this is a parable. This was made up so Jesus could teach us some of these important lessons. What do we see here is the lesson that we need. Well, this second, the first servant, we'll call him, the one that got forgiven six billion, when he encountered a fellow human being, a fellow servant, an equal of his, compared to the master, the real master, to God himself. And that guy did something that was hurtful and offensive to him. Instead of being in touch with how much he had been forgiven, And how much his balance sheet had been helped. And being grateful to the master and wanting to imitate that mercy. Instead, he let the hurt go to his heart. And he let the anger build. And he got to the place where he just felt so much righteous indignation. I can't believe you owe me $12,000. And he's grabbing the guy by the throat and screaming at him. Now, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt yourself so angry at somebody because you just can't imagine that they did that thing to you? You are so hurt. You're so indignant. You're so aware that this was an unjust thing that they did. And so you're taking them by the throat, figuratively speaking. Maybe some of you have done it more than figuratively. Um, you're not in jail, so I trust it didn't go too far. But, you know, that, that's the human response, isn't it? When someone hurts us, when somebody does something that's not right, fair, or just, that's our fleshly response. But God says that's not an option for those of us that have received the grace and mercy of God. That's why this forgiveness thing wasn't an optional course, Peter, to see if you could go from three times to seven times and be done with it. Because what's the limit of how much you've been forgiven, Peter? There is no limit. How much did you owe, Peter? An enormous, infinite amount. How much do I owe that I cannot pay? How much did Christ pay on my behalf and on your behalf? And so he brings us to this real reality that forgiveness is um, part and parcel of being forgiven. It's a direct connection to that. Now, I know that uh, some of you perhaps have played this role in your family. I mean, you're the one that is uh, holding on to that anger, that grief, that memory that smell of how bad it hurt when somebody did that maybe you're doing that with a coworker maybe you're doing that towards somebody here at church maybe there's somebody that said something or did something and you haven't forgiven or forgotten that thing you're holding on to it figuratively speaking you have them by the throat in your heart well you know when this story if you follow it that way there's no end in sight there's no resolution This guy goes back to jail until he's going to repay. There's no way out for him. And frankly, when we choose to not forgive, we are enslaving ourselves just like that. We are basically saying, I'm going to be locked into this hateful, spiteful, painful relationship, and I actually have control of it because I got the guy by the throat because I won't forgive what they did to me and I remember it and I rehearse it and I play those tapes in my mind and I get myself wound up about it and then I feel good about being angry because it's right because it was unfair and unjust and I play those things over and over again thinking that in that somehow I'm getting relief from the hurt of that sin when actually I'm putting myself right back in jail. I am putting myself right in a prison where I will know no freedom, no joy, not the joy of my salvation, not that fresh sense of how loved I am by Christ, because I am a prisoner of my own hate, my own unwillingness to forgive. That's really uh, not unusual for us to run into. It amazes me to hear stories of people that you know, live in the same town as their brother and haven't talked to him for 30 years. I mean, the dysfunctional stories you hear in families are just sometimes so shocking and so saddening. People that just can't do life together. Can't figure out how to do it. And almost always there's uh, unforgiveness as a part of those stories. Sometimes there's actually just gross miscommunication and misunderstanding. And the issues where the hurt was a real hurt have been so exaggerated, they have no real bearing on what happened originally. But it's that pattern of holding on and letting the bitterness grow that's causing people to have this problem and that response. Well, we need to see that God has a different call for us here. Forgiveness means that we have to take the loss instead of demanding repayment. And if you've got something tonight, if there's something that you've been holding on to, some hurt, some injustice, I want you to consider before God and in God's fellowship as we're having communion, whether tonight he's calling for you to let that go and to basically make the payment yourself, in which case you should scream out and say, well, that'd be okay, Pastor, but I don't have what it takes to pay. I understand that, and so did Jesus. You see, we have to keep receiving the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And then we're enabled to do the forgiveness and the work of the grace of God. Forgiveness is a choice. I would agree with the book on that regard. It is a decision. I had a lot of people that would come to me for different kinds of counsel and say, well, I forgave my husband, I forgave my son, I forgave this, but I still am struggling with my feelings. And I'd say, well, don't confuse forgiveness with your emotions. If somebody did something that really hurts you, you can make a choice of the will to cancel their debt that they owe you. Which means you're not going to bring it up again. You're not going to keep rehearsing that in your mind. You're not going to rehearse it to them. But it doesn't mean that your emotions will heal immediately. Our emotions are like a cut in the flesh. It takes time for them to heal. Forgiveness is that act of the will to say, I cancel the debt. The emotional healing just takes time. And the reconciliation is another process as well. Not the same thing as forgiveness. Forgiveness is you saying, am I letting this go or holding on to it? Forgiveness does bring freedom. Tremendous freedom. Forgiveness is our way uh, back into sort of the kingdom pattern of the king. Forgiveness is required, but forgiveness is also enabled by the love of God poured out in Christ. I just want to encourage you, if there's something that you're struggling with, And you feel like someone's hurt you, and you just can't let go of it. It could be that the starting place for you is at communion tonight. To remember, as we take the bread and the cup, symbolizing the body and blood of Christ, how much Jesus Christ loves you. He knows of all your sin. He knows of all your mess. And he says, I still choose you. I love you. I gave my perfect life for you because of my love. And now I'm asking you, I'm going to give you so much love and acceptance. In fact, I'm not just going to ask you to forgive other people. I'm going to take away every problem the curse brings to your life. Maybe you feel like, well, your injustice, your difficulty, is actually something that maybe you're actually having a hard time forgiving God. Well, it wasn't fair that this happened to my child. Or it wasn't fair that we got this sickness in our family at this time. Or some really grave injustice happened. And so we're struggling with that. Let's think about that for a minute. If we think we can't forgive God because of some effect of the curse, you have to recognize, first of all, God's not the author of the curse. It was the free will he gave us, and Adam, our representative, sinned, and we continue following in that pattern, and so we live with the consequences of the curse. But Jesus loved us so much. He said, I'm not leaving them alone. I'm going to go, even though I've got the perfect comfort of heaven, the perfect fellowship of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, I'm leaving that to go and rescue them, and I'm paying the ultimate price, the infinite price. I'm paying myself, my life for them. And having loved them so much, I want them to be freed from every aspect of the curse. Some right now in a spiritual sense and some as it goes into eternity. Whether they come to heaven to be with me or when I return, I'm going to drive away every part of the curse. And when you receive that, then you have to say, okay, so what was it again that I was holding against God? Because these bad things happened in my life? Is he the author of those bad things? No, he's the author of the son who came. To take away the bad things. And so is it wrong for us to expect or for us to see that God expects an attitude of gratitude for what he's done? You see, that is at the root of our being able to forgive. Let me tell you this story. It's a story about Koreans and the Japanese. Shortly after the turn of the century, Japan invaded and conquered and occupied Korea. Of all their oppressors, that is Korea had a lot, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with brutality that would sicken the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhumane. Many Koreans live today with the physical and emotional scars from the Japanese occupation. One group singled out for concentration and concentrated oppression was the Christians. When the Japanese army overpowered Korea, one of the first things they did was board up the evangelical churches and eject most foreign missionaries. The conquerors started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the Christian spokespersons. The oppression intensified as the Japanese military increased its profile in the South Pacific. The land of the rising sun spread its influence through a reign of savage brutality. These were bad days. Anguish filled the hearts of the oppressed and kindled hatred deep in their souls. An injustice had been done. It was wrong and the Japanese were so cruel and so mean and so relentless. It seemed like they had every right to not be forgiving towards them. One pastor persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated, and the police chief offered to unlock his church for a one meeting. It didn't take long for word to travel. Committed Christians starving for an opportunity for unhindered worship quickly made their plans. Long before dawn, On that promised Sunday, Korean families throughout a wide area made their way to the church. They passed the staring eyes of their Japanese captors, but nothing was going to steal their joy. As they closed the doors behind them, they shut out the cares of oppression and shut in a burning spirit anxious to glorify God. The Korean church has always had a reputation as a singing church. Their voices of praise could not be concealed inside the little wooden frame sanctuary. Song after song rang through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening nearby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed suspended in time. It was during a stanza of Nearer My God to Thee that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors, but no one realized that they had doused the church with kerosene until they smelled smoke. The dried wooden skin of that small church quickly ignited, Fumes filled the structure as tongues of flame began to lick the baseboards of their interior walls. There was an immediate rush for the windows. But momentary hope recoiled in horror as the men climbing out the windows came crashing back in, their bodies ripped by a hail of bullets. The good pastor knew it was the end. With a calm that comes from confidence, he led his congregation in a hymn whose words serve as a fitting farewell to earth and a loving salutation to heaven. The first few words were all the prompting the terrified worshipers needed. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one to sing their hope and leave their legacy. Their song became a serenade to the horrified and helpless witnesses outside. Their words also tugged at the hearts of the cruel men who oversaw this flaming execution of the innocent. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Just before the roof collapsed, they sang the last verse, their words an eternal testimony to their faith. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Clearing the incinerated remains was the easy part. Erasing the hate would take decades. Some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low, and there seemed to be no way to curb their bitterness towards the Japanese. So decades passed. The Japanese were conquered. They were removed, but they still remained the hated enemy. The monument the Koreans built at the location of the fire not only memorialized the people who died, but stood as a mute reminder of their pain and justified their bitterness. The Korean people, who found it too hard to forgive, could not enjoy the peace that passes all understanding. Hatred choked their joy. In 1972, a new thing happened. Decades later... A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea came upon the memorial. When they read the details of the tragedy and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, they were overcome with shame. Their country had sinned, and even though none of them were personally involved, some hadn't even been born at the time, they still felt a national guilt that could not be excused. They returned to Japan, committed to make the wrong right. They raised $25,000, dollars not a bad sum in the 70s, and returned and built a beautiful church right on the location where the monument was to this tragedy. When the dedication service for the new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and special guests there in Korea. Although their generosity was acknowledged and their attempts at making peace appreciated, the memories were still there. I've been at meetings just like this, trying to get people to reconcile and the memories are in the room of the pain. Hatred preserves pain. It keeps the wounds open and the hurts fresh. The Koreans' bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brothers or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. The speeches were made, the details of the tragedy recalled, and the names of the dead honored. It was time to bring the service to a close. Someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung the day the church was burned. The song leader began the words to near my God to thee. But something remarkable happened as the voices mingled with that familiar melody. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance started to melt. The inspiration that gave hope to a doomed collection of churchgoers in a past generation gave hope once more. The song leader closed the service with the hymn at the cross. The normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears began to fill their eyes during the song, and they suddenly gushed from deep within. They turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive them. The guarded, calloused hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender, but the love of the Japanese believers, unintimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, One Korean turned toward a Japanese brother, then another. And then the floodgates, holding back a wave of emotion, let go. The Koreans met their new Japanese friends in the middle. They clung to each other and wept. Japanese tears of repentance and Korean tears of forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Heaven had sent a gift of reconciliation to a little white church in Korea that day. So what about us? Did you come in here carrying some unforgiveness? Needing to seek some forgiveness? Might God be so merciful in our church to allow us to seek one another out and to seek forgiveness for the words we've said, the hurt we've done, the grudge we've held? Do we understand that we are our own jailers when we forgive, when we choose not to forgive? And that we're also disobedient to our King who paid everything for us. I just want us to close this with this passage from Ephesians, Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Don't hold on to your gripes and your beefs. Get rid of them. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. As dearly loved children, I beseech you, love one another and mark it by forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for your precious word to us and for the hope we have in Christ, first to be forgiven our enormous debts, and then to not have to be in prison to our hatred and our bitterness and our grief, but instead, through your grace and mercy to us, to be able to forgive and release and make the payment that others have owing us. And Lord, I pray for each and every person, every family represented here tonight, for our whole church, that you would lead us to be great at forgiveness like Jesus. And I pray it in his name. Amen.